Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Good to have you here. If you've been listening, thanks for sticking with us. We've gotten some great comments on Apple Podcasts, great comments on SoundCloud. Um, check us out. We're also on Stitcher Podcast, so if you like using that app, that's available for you too. But we're talking about all sorts of issues of law that might concern you as a law enforcement officer in Virginia. Everything from use of force law, changes in marijuana laws, uh, change, you know, electronic evidence, new discovery rules in Virginia, and so on. Uh, we've been watching, especially too, the new laws that might be coming in the in this special session. The bills have started to drop. We've started to see a couple come through, uh, but you know, obviously, the special session hasn't started, and there's a lot more to come. Um, what we've seen so far, we've only seen about five bills, nothing too earth-shattering, but we're certainly going to see more stuff get proposed, and I'll keep you updated as that comes out. We've been talking about electronic evidence, though, lately. We've been talking about getting court orders for subscriber information, search warrants, and so on. And last episode, we talked about getting search warrants for devices. That's really what I want to focus on today. Today's episode is going to be about getting search warrants for devices. And this is something I think if you're a law enforcement officer in Virginia, you're going to probably have to do at some point or another. And so we're you know, trying to give you guys tools that you need. This is a, a podcast for law enforcement officers like you who want to do it right. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you've been listening, it's because you care about doing it right, about knowing the law, and uh, using that knowledge to strengthen and better serve your community. And I really appreciate you guys doing that and sticking around and sharing ideas and so on. Uh, we're going to cover lots more topics in the future. We're going to talk a lot about new cases and so on. There's some really interesting new cases from the Court of Appeals, especially the Fourth Circuit this summer, and I do want to get to those too. But when we talked about uh, search warrants last time, we talked about delay, you know, getting a search warrant for a device and, you know, what if you're delayed and so on. And of course, one of the chief ways that you can get delayed in searching a device is if you can't get the device open, right? If you don't have the password, if you don't have a way to unlock it and so on. And that's what I want to talk about today is unlocking devices. And then I want to talk about timing as far as when is it considered to be served? When, is it, when do we consider a search warrant on an electronic device to be served? Because that's really an interesting question, and it's an unresolved question, just like the password question is too. So if you think about, you know, you've got a phone, let's say, for example, you've got, you picked a phone, and it is locked. It is not open, and you want to try to open it, right? I mean, the best thing you can do if you're trying to get a device and you're trying to search that device is to seize it while it's unlocked. That would be great, but that's hard to do. It requires usually some planning. It requires some luck. You might be able to unlock it using the person's face, but you need to make sure that you recognize, again, that Face ID attempts can, after a certain number of attempts, as a certain number of times that the phone looks at someone's face, that can lock you out of being able to use Face ID, especially with an iPhone. Ten chances, ten, face, ten looks at a face, any face out there counts as an attempt, and after ten chances, that phone locks up and has to be used to passcode. So you can try to guess the passcode, and that's another thing you can do. Now, we, we talk about this and teach electronic evidence. We talk about different strategies and tactics for guessing passcodes. And a lot of these are sort of, um, these are things I wouldn't necessarily share on the podcast openly because, of course, you know, who knows, somebody else could be listening to this podcast or publish the contents of it and so on. I don't mind talking about the law, but, you know, tactics for guessing people's, guessing people's passcodes and so on, that's a little bit more... Uh, nuanced. So if you ever want to talk about that offline, reach out to me in these different ways. But everybody's got their own sort of go-to methods. But remember, if you're trying to guess it, you only have a certain number of guesses. If you And you got to know what that number is. So again, for the Apple devices, it's pretty uniform. It's 10 guesses. But it can be different. It can be changed. So sometimes devices, too, can be open with someone's face or open with somebody's fingerprint. 
Now, if you think about opening it with their face or opening it with their fingerprint, you got to remember that you have a, a very limited amount of time to do that. You only can, can do that within usually the first, at, at most the first 24 hours, because after the first 24 hours, at least with uh, Apple devices, they're going to lock up and require you to put a passcode in anyway. And Android devices depends on what OS is running. Um, one of the reasons I, I always talk about Apple devices is because they're so uniform. Is they almost always follow the same operating system. Android devices is a, is a very wide variety in, in operating systems, and so it's a little more tricky to talk about them universally. You do have the lawful authority under law to compel somebody to uh, provide things like blood samples, handwriting exemplars, recordings of their voices, that kind of thing. And that's U.S. Supreme Court law. Uh, that's very old. It's been around for a long time, but you need to get some kind of order to compel it, right? And so if you think about it again, think about what we talked about last time with the search warrant and the pen register. Would a search warrant get you somebody's fingerprint? Well, it could get you their fingerprint, but would it get them, would it, would it be something where you could order them to take their fingerprint and put it on the phone, right? A search warrant is to search the person, and you're trying to get the person to take their thumb and put it on the phone. That's really more of a court order. That's not really a search warrant. So you couldn't, I don't think you'd get a search warrant to do that, but you could get a court order theoretically to do that if you had an investigation uh, and you had arrested the person in a case. The U.S. Supreme Court at least thinks that you can do stuff like that. The trickier question, though, is can you court order compel somebody to give them give up their password? This is an area of law that is very controversial and there are a lot of different courts who've come out a lot of different ways on this. And so what I want to do, and this is going to be very similar to the encryption problem, so uh, we're going to talk about this in the context of encryption. What I want to talk about is sort of the different directions the courts have gone and what your options are, but if you want to try to go this route, uh, what the limitations are. In Virginia Beach, they tried to do this back uh, in 2014. They tried to get a court order to compel a guy to give his password over. And the circuit court in that case, the defendant's name was Boust, decide, ruled that compelling a defendant to provide his passcode was compelled information, and it was testimonial information, and therefore it was protected by the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which protects you from being compelled to provide testimony against yourself, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, we would love to get into his phone. What we'd really love to get is a confession about, you know, what it is that he had done wrong. So we, why don't we just get a court order to compel him to talk to the court about what he had done, right? Well, we can't do that because of the Fifth Amendment. Well, the court in this case found that it's pretty much the same thing. He'd already, you know, put his thoughts and so on into the phone, and then he'd put a passcode on it. If he told you what the passcode was, he'd be admitting that the thoughts written down in the phone are actually his thoughts and his notes and the things that he did and said, and therefore it'd be the same thing as him admitting or being forced to say the things that are in the phone. Is what the court basically ruled. Um, you cannot compel a defendant to divulge through his mental processes his passcode, and therefore the court did not order it. Now the court did find that again his fingerprint would be non-testimonial. That didn't communicate any knowledge. That just was a a uh, physical act, so you could compel it, but that's not going to open the phone, right? Because it's too late. It's after 24 hours. There have been courts, though, that have ordered defendants to provide passcodes to devices, to provide passwords for computers or for phones. And they are the courts, when they order this, are generally doing it in a very limited circumstance. So let me explain how it is that courts are doing this and the theory under which they're ordering people to provide their passcodes. 
like I said, the Fifth Amendment protects us from having uh, from being forced to provide testimony against ourselves in court. Before the you know before we had a Constitution back in the days of you know England, and even before you know England, obviously one of the chief concerns was that people would be you know tortured or forced to provide testimony against themselves. And so we had the Fifth Amendment enacted when we adopted the Constitution. And what that provided was that an accused didn't have to be compelled to give testimony against himself. But that doesn't mean you can't, for example, get blood from a suspect in a DUI case, right? You're getting their physical body to testify against them, but that's a blood test or getting, uh, taking a breathalyzer test or taking someone's fingerprints and then matching the fingerprints of a scene, that kind of stuff. Um, that's, they're not providing testimony. They're not providing the contents of their thoughts. They're simply providing some kind of body, you know, uh, evidence, some evidence from their body. So Schmerber versus California, which is a case about a blood test, it's 1966, but it's a case about a blood test, explains that the privilege protects an accused only from being compelled to testify against himself or to otherwise provide the state with evidence of a testimonial or communicative nature. So the question then is, all right, when would it be that making somebody give you their password or their passcode to their device, to their computer, their phone, whatever, wouldn't be used against them as testimony? And the answer is essentially when it is, it would be, it wouldn't be testimony if you weren't planning to use the fact that they knew the passcode to the device against them in court, right? Because if you think about it, somebody who knows, if I know the passcode to a phone, it's probably my phone. If I know the password to a computer, it's probably my computer. And so I would use that evidence. Normally, I would just use that in court. If somebody, you know, if I watch somebody unlock a phone with their with their passcode, I would use that in court and say, "Look, it's obviously their phone. They know the passcode." But what if I already knew it was their phone? What if I didn't need their testimony? What if it's just that the only thing between me and the contents of that device is getting the passcode? I just need to get the passcode, but I don't need them to testify that it's their phone, it's their device, because I can already prove that. Well, in cases like U.S. versus Apple and U.S. versus Fisher, what the courts have said essentially is that the Fifth Amendment doesn't independently prescribe compelling production of every kind of incriminating evidence, but only applies when the accused is compelled to make a testimonial communication that's incriminating. And so where the existence or custody and authenticity of evidence is a foregone conclusion that adds little or nothing to the sum total of the state's information, the defendant's act of giving the passcode or typing the passcode in doesn't really add anything to that evidence and therefore isn't testimonial. So giving a passcode to provide access to a device isn't testimonial when everybody already knows that the device belongs to the suspect. It's a foregone conclusion. And that phrase foregone conclusion comes to define this type of argument. Um, there's a case called U.S. versus uh, Fricosu where, they, where the court writes, and this is in Colorado, the thought process of a witness, no matter how complex, would have zero communicative value if the government was already aware of the existence, location, and authenticity of the requested documents. And so in that situation, the question isn't of testimony, but simply of surrender, of just letting you get to that device, right? So in that sense, then, the, uh, the foregone conclusion doctrine is an argument that you can make to get into a device, or excuse me, to get a court order to provide somebody a, a passcode to get into a device uh, in those cases. Now, again, you get the court order, does that actually mean that they give you the passcode? I mean, if somebody is looking at 20 years or 30 years or life in the penitentiary, 
and your threat is if you don't give me this passcode, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court. I mean, that's not very much of an incentive for the person to turn over their passcode. They know that whatever they have in that phone is going to get them 20 years or 30 years of life in prison because they know what, what bad stuff is in the phone. So they're probably not going to give you the passcode even if you do get this court order. Uh, but, you know, in a lesser case, maybe you, you know, the person might have the incentive to, to provide it. In addition to that, of course, keep in mind, if they refuse to comply with the court order, uh, that potentially can be used against them in court. So if, for example, you know, it come, you're never able, never able to get, get into the device, and the question at trial comes up, well, why weren't you able to get into the device? And the answer is, well, we got a, a court order that ordered the defendant to open it, but he refused to provide the passcode to open the device. So, you know, you, you might be able to talk to your prosecutor, but you might be able to use that in your, in your case um, uh, to explain the absence of the evidence. There was an alternative approach to this in a case called Oloyede, and you're going to have to make a decision for yourself whether you would do this. But there's a Fourth Circuit case called U.S. versus Oloyede, and this is a case where the FBI is executing a search warrant, and in the, in the search warrant, they have the authority to seize and analyze digital devices. So they pick up a phone, and they notice that the phone is locked, and so they hand it to the defendant in this case, and they'd say to her, could you please unlock your phone? And not looking at what she's doing with the phone, uh, they let her type her passcode in. She unlocks her phone, then they take the phone back, and then they do their work on the phone. So in that case, the defendant later, she, they didn't ask her for the passcode. Remember, all they do is hand the phone to her and say, unlock this, please. She unlocks it, and then they hand it over to the digital analyst who then begins to triage the phone. Her argument at, in court was they forced me to pr provide testimony against myself. And the Fourth Circuit rejected that argument and said, no, she didn't make testimony. She didn't make a communication relating to a factual assertion or disclose information. All that she did was use the unexpressed contents of her mind to type in the passcode. And the, the officers in this case had the lawful authority to seize the device and search it. So it's not like she was giving them the ability to do something they didn't have the authority to do. They had the authority to search this device. She just simply provided them the means to do that, uh, which they were lawfully allowed to do. So the court rejects her argument. You're gonna have to decide for yourself though, tactically speaking, whether that's a smart move to hand a device that you wanna analyze to a suspect in a case. Again, you're not looking at what the person is writing down or typing. Um, you know, are they typing in the passcode or are they wiping the device? Are they locking the device? Um, you know, I, that's may depend on a case by case basis, but you know, that's a decision that you're going to have to make. That's not a legal decision. That's a tactical decision. And I try not to stick my nose in that stuff. So that's sort of the first question, right? What do we, how do we deal with passcodes and so on? The second question is, all right, let's say, for example, I'm, I don't have the passcode. I don't have the phone open. I don't have a way to get it open. I'm going to have to try to uh, turn it over to my forensic unit and see if my forensic unit can get access to this device without knowing what the passcode is or without knowing uh, how to open it using you know, Face ID or whatever. So let's say, again, this, I seize this device on January 1st from my suspect. And I bring it back to the property section. I check into the property section. And then I go visit my forensic unit 
you know, let's say that's a Friday. So Monday morning I go in and I say, hey, I got this phone on Friday um, and I want to get it analyzed forensically. I don't know what the passcode is. I don't have a face ID at this point. It's too late. Don't have a fingerprint lock and lock. Uh, how long is it going to take for you to open this device and give it to me? And the answer might be, I don't know. Right? The answer might be, look, I can't even begin to look at this device for three weeks. And then when I begin to look at the device, I don't know how long it's going to take for me to get it open, to get into the data. It might take me a week. It might take me six months. It might take me a year. Um, the FBI, for example, had the, uh, the phone from the Fort Hood attacker. So if you remember, there was an attack uh, made on soldiers at Fort Hood by a member of the Saudi Royal Air Force. And if you remember that case, right, so this is a, a very violent attack on a U.S. military base uh, by somebody who's potentially related to al-Qaeda. And they saw, seized his device in that case. And you can imagine the kind of resources they put in to try to get into that device, right, how important it was, what a priority it was. It took them four months of effort to get into that device. Now, they didn't have any assistance from Apple. They didn't have any assistance from the defendant, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, that's a high-priority investigation, and it takes four months to get into that device. Think about, you know, in your case, if you've got a, you know, series of robberies or something like that, uh, or, you know, a carjacking or something, uh, you know, how long is it going to take your department or your agency based on your resources to get, to get into that device? And the answer is going to be, I don't know. I mean, the answer usually is, I don't know. It depends uh, on a lot of factors, including luck. So let's look what the statute says. The statute says, 19.256 says that any search warrant that isn't executed within 15 days thereof, after issuance thereof, um, shall be returned and voided by the officer who issued such a search warrant. So if you seized the phone on January 1st, on Friday evening, and then you came back to work on Monday, January 4th, if you got a search warrant on Monday, January 4th, you have 15 days to serve that search warrant. Now, you have to serve a search warrant forthwith, so you can't just delay for no reason. You have to serve, serve it as soon as you possibly can. But here in this case, you've got a forensic examiner who said, look, I can't get to this phone for at least two weeks, so uh, I don't have a lot of time. So, you know, you might have a reason there, but the real basic question that this begs is, when is it that the warrant is actually served? I mean, is it served when you seize the device? Well, the device is already seized in my case. It would be easier, right, if this was a search warrant of a house. I mean, if we're, if we're doing the Oloyedi case, right, like the FBI was doing, if I've got a search warrant and it says I can seize and analyze digital devices in the home, when I go to the house, I knock on the door, they open the door, I come inside, I, I, I seize the digital devices, there it's pretty clear that I've executed the search warrant when I seize the device, right? That, that we're pretty good with. But the more complicated case is the uh, case like uh, the U.S. versus Pratt case that we talked about in the last episode, right? Where I'm in the parking lot, I'm arresting this guy for child, for exploiting this child. Uh, I know that it's got evidence on the phone, but I didn't know I was going to be arresting this guy, so I arrest him, I take him into custody. I know I've got child pornography in here, I've got probable cause of having child pornography, so i got to get a search warrant to get into this device. So I rest him on Friday evening, Monday morning, I come in, when do I get the search warrant and when is it served? Well, let's look back at the statute again. So the statute says more. The statute in 19.257 says that a warrant is executed by the search of the place described in the warrant. And if property described in the warrant is found there by the seizure of the property. 
and then an inventory of any seized property shall be produced before the circuit court of the county or city where the search was conducted within three days after the execution of such a search warrant in the circuit court clerk's office. And I will tell you in addition to that, when you think about that inventory, that the courts have told us now for almost 30 years that although the search warrant statute requires the return be filed with the inventory attached, that doesn't mean that you can't come back later and file an addendum to the inventory within the statutory time frame when the requirements for filing the digital inventory, the original inventory have been satisfied. So we have this statute that tells us we have to serve our warrant within 15 days. We know that an inventory has to be filed when uh, the search, when there's been a search of the place described, and if something is seized uh, the, uh, by, uh, by the seizure of the property. That's what, that's what an execution of the warrant is. So what, how do we follow this command? Well, let's ask ourselves another question. What does the Fourth Amendment say about this? Actually, as it turns out, the Fourth Amendment doesn't say anything about this. This is one of those weird situations, again, where we're, we're really looking at the code because the Fourth Amendment is silent about the issue, just like with, for example, the third party doctrine and serving search warrants and getting search warrants and getting court orders for subscriber data. The Fourth Amendment contains no requirements about when a search and seizure is to occur or the duration. The only requirement is that if you see something without a warrant, uh, that you basically use diligence to obtain a warrant as soon as possible. But remember those cases where I talked about the diligence being required, right? The diligence that's required takes into account the fact that you might be so overworked that you just don't have the ability to get to the device. I told you last time about the U.S. versus Brown case. That was a case where I think it was like three months to, to, before they were able to analyze the device. But they came to court and were able to say, look, I had that much work. I had that much backlog before I could actually physically look at this device. And in view of that, there's been a lot of cases all over the U.S. We don't have any in Virginia or the Fourth Circuit, unfortunately, so I have to make analogies to other cases in other jurisdictions. But the Eighth Circuit, the First Circuit, the Fifth Circuit, uh, in those circuits, courts have consistently permitted some delay in the execution of search warrants involving computers, involving digital devices, uh, because of the complexity of the search. And they often restrict their analysis of the delay to considering whether or not the delay essentially rendered the warrant stale. In other words, was there no, due to the delay, was, it, was there no longer any reason to think that there was evidence in the device? And that's really almost never going to happen in your cases. So, you know, let's go, you know, I was a drug guy. I, was a, I did drug cases for, you know, I don't know, about a decade uh, or more. Um, you know, yeah, more than a decade um, doing drug prosecutions. And so I like to think about, and we, you know, because we live in and breathe search warrants in the drug world, right? So I think about a drug search warrant. Again, you get to a house, bang on the door, the door opens, you come inside, you start searching, you're searching for drugs, you're searching for records and documents demonstrating uh, distribution or possession with intent to distribute drugs. And so when you're seizing these records and documents, you're seizing a lot of stuff, right? Let's say, for example, you're seizing, uh, you're seizing, you know, envelopes. Uh, you're going to see, you're going to seize financial statements. They're going to tend to show this person either does or doesn't have a legitimate source of income to pay for the, you know, fancy car and nice TVs and all the kind of stuff has when the guy says he has no job and he has a public defender, right? So he's driving like a BMW and he's got, you know, a 
85 inch television and a really nice house and you know lots of rolex watches but he says he has no job and he's got a public defender so where's all this money coming from right so you got these financial statements you're going to seize the financial statements now are you going to tear them open and read them right there on the scene and sit in this house until you've read them all no you're going to take them seize them bring them back to the office and then look at them later on when do you have to look at them well the Virginia Court of Appeals looked at this case, looked at this question back in 2005 in a case called Dotson versus Commonwealth, where officers were seizing records and documents and so on. And during the course of the execution of the search warrant, they seized a safe. Now, they couldn't get the safe open, but they certainly had probable cause to believe that there was stuff inside this safe that was uh, relevant and material to the search warrant. So they take the entire safe with them back to the office. And they're not able to get the safe open for like 15 days. But finally, 15 days later, i.e. after the search warrant's already been served, after the inventory's been filed, after the search warrant's already expired, right, they then open the the safe. And what the court says is that it is reasonable and within the scope of the warrant to search the safe and seize its contents after it's already been removed and after the search warrant has already essentially been has expired and has already been filed. Now, the best practice, I think, in that case, then, is once you've opened it, you need to file a supplement with the court because now you've discovered more things that you didn't know were there. So you should describe a further inventory, file a supplement. And like I said, West versus Commonwealth makes clear that you can do that. But it's proper to seize a container, a physical container, for purposes of later examination, even if you don't open it on the scene. And that's a U.S. Supreme Court case called U.S. versus Johns from 1985. So the question then becomes, all right, again, we're back to this issue of when do I get my search warrant and when is my search warrant served? Well, we know a couple of things. We know, number one, that the first question that's going to be asked is, did you lawfully seize the device? If I had a search warrant for the house and the digital device in the house, then yeah, I seized it lawfully. I, I put the phone on my inventory and I'm done. But the more complicated case, the case we're trying to answer is if I'm seizing it off the street and then when do I get that search warrant? We know that U.S. versus Pratt and lots of other cases tell us we've got to get the search warrant um, as soon as we can, but it doesn't appear that that 15-day requirement starts right until such time as we actually get the search warrant. Moreover, the Fourth Amendment doesn't require us to serve that search warrant within a particular period of time. 19.257 is the code section. It doesn't, it's not a Fourth Amendment code section. It's just a statutory code section. And so the question is, when do we get the search warrant? And the answer seems to be, we don't know. But in, for example, U.S. versus Brown and U.S. versus Pratt and so on, the court found it was reasonable that when you were ready to start analyzing the device, that was the appropriate time to get a search warrant is what they seem to be saying. I think there's a lot of different good answers to this. And I want to be very clear that I'm not telling you that there's one right answer and one answer that's not right, because we don't have any answer from the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court. And we don't really have any answer from the Fourth Circuit either, and certainly not from the U.S. Supreme Court, about when you're supposed to get a search warrant and when is it served. But it seems, when you read these cases, that it seems to be saying that if you have seized that device from the street, that you continue to hold that device in your property section until such time as you are able to analyze that device or start analyzing the device or start you know the work on that device. And then you get that search warrant and serve it by 
starting the analysis or starting the uh, starting the work on the device. So the device sits in property and you hopefully diligently keep trying to make sure that it gets in the queue and you know gets looked at and gets looked at and you should be keeping track of the fact that either they're telling you no we're not ready we don't have time and you keep track of what was in the way and why they couldn't look at it and what was what was holding it up and what was holding it up and you're writing reports and you're writing supplements because you know this is going to get questioned in court and then finally they say okay we're ready to look at your device now you get that search warrant and you march it down to that office uh, or maybe the forensic unit gets their own search warrant depending on what your procedure is and then they execute it by taking physical possession of that device and beginning their analysis. Now again, your question might be, okay, well, when do you turn your return in? Do you have to actually get the device open, right? I mean, take your Fort Hood situation, right? The FBI, I'm sure, got his device and probably started working on it within 24 hours. I'm guessing. I don't know this, but I'm just guessing. Within 24 hours of the Fort Hood shooting and them seizing those phones, they started working on those phones. It took them four months to actually get into the phones and see what was inside of the phones. So the question then is, all right, is it is it the first day or is it four months in? And again, if you look at that code section 19.257, what the code section 19.257 says is a warrant is executed by the search of the place and if property described in the warrant is found there by the seizure of the property which seems to say to me that it's when you start the analysis on the phone. You've physically taken the phone and you've uh, hooked it up and you've begun to do the work. So, so I think you've got a good argument to make that the uh, device is, is uh, the execute, search warrant is executed on, that, on day one as opposed to day four months from now. What is that? Uh, let me do my math. 120, day 120. What do you write in your inventory? I would say, you know, digital contents of, uh, of you know, phone, of iPhone with serial number, blah, 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 or, you know, with of Android phone or Samsung Galaxy S10 phone with serial number, blah, 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 blah. If you want to file a supplement to that inventory later, you're certainly welcome to do that. Um, it doesn't appear that, that is something that's required, but it also wasn't, doesn't hurt you, right? So if you finally get... You know, you could you could say um, ex- executed by beginning analysis on phone, and then you could do an, an inventory later that said uh, digital contents of phone downloaded, and file that. You know, again on day one twenty, and that would be even more complete. That would be belt and suspenders, right? So you'd have both filed. But again, the code doesn't give us a clear answer, so we're kind of reaching around in the dark trying to figure this out. All these code sections were written in a time when none of the stuff was even. Uh, remotely possible, much less uh, likely. And, you know, maybe the General Assembly will give us further guidance, or maybe they will just change it and make it more difficult. Who knows? Um, So we'll have to see. I do want to kind of talk to you, um, lastly, though, and and keep in mind that there may be a change to our whole uh, system of getting into these devices and something you should keep uh, keep track of. There is in Congress making its way through something called the Lawful uh, Access Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act, and that would require assistance to law enforcement in decrypting or decoding information on an electronic device or remotely stored information. Um, when it's uh, technically impossible to do so for law enforcement, and so you're, you'd be uh, Apple or you know Google or whoever would be required to give uh, technical assistance to law enforcement. That hasn't happened yet, but it's actually this year made more progress than any other uh, than anyone had ever have had thought before. So it's possible that that might come down the pike in the next couple of years, but don't hold your breath. 
So that's all I've got to talk about today when it comes to uh, digital device search warrants. I do want to get back to this topic, though, and talk about um, effective search warrant writing at some point in the future. Uh, but we had so many new cases, so many interesting cases come down from the Court of Appeals this year that I think I'm going to shift in the next episode and talk to you about some important new cases from the Court of Appeals and Fourth Circuit, um, especially some interesting cases on use of force and search and seizure. So that's what we'll be talking about next time. Um, that's all from me. I hope you guys like the podcast. If you do, tell your friends. If you don't like it, don't tell your friends. Um, but that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe, everybody. Don't get captured.